At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Forget about being grounded. The world's largest bounce house is coming to Gwinnett County Fairgrounds this weekend. City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes jumps for joy with details of the event later this hour. Plus, speaking of dance, our series highlighting local dance artists today features Julie Johnson. First, in his new book, Why the Museum Matters, Daniel H. Weiss writes, At their best, art museums take us to new places, allowing us to see the larger world differently than we otherwise would, and in turn, to learn something about ourselves. Dr. Weiss is the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. He's also an esteemed scholar and past president of Haverford College. Daniel Weiss will give a talk in Atlanta on February 28th at Emory University's Carlos Museum. And he joins us now to discuss why the museum matters. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me, Lois. I'm delighted to be here. In just 168 pages, you provide an astonishing wealth of material beginning with the antecedents of the museum. What do we know of how ancient societies collected and displayed artwork? Well, one of the questions I was really interested in exploring in this book was where the idea of museums, as we understand them and we appreciate them, comes from. And as I am myself an art historian with training in the classical world and the medieval world, so I've always thought about origins of modern civilization in the ancient world. And so the answer to the question is that from all of recorded history, from the earliest days, we know anything about civilizations, the earliest settlements where human beings lived together. They gathered and collected objects that they curated and presented in ways to tell stories. They would not have called them museums, but they were doing something that looks in many ways like what we do today in modern museums. And that is to help to inform the human condition and enrich their experience 
by using objects to tell stories. In Roman culture, why were the contributions of Cicero and Polio significant? Well, it was one of the most interesting and consequential moments in the history of Western civilization. The Roman Republic, which had been an effort in communal government that had endured for centuries quite successfully, was coming to an end in the first century before our era. That was the time when Cicero lived. And Cicero was very interested in the ways in which art can enrich public experience. He was himself a collector of art. And he began to think for the first time that there ought to be laws and ethical guidelines around who gets to keep and collect art. The Romans were collectors. They also were art thieves and plunderers. And Cicero was interested in regulating that behavior in ways that benefited the larger population. At the same time, the Roman Republic was coming under duress as Julius Caesar was beginning civil wars that would allow him to become the, an emperor and therefore effectively disband the Roman Republic and turn it into a dictatorship. We all know what happened to Julius Caesar, but in that propitious moment in history, there was a real risk that many Roman citizens felt that freedom and liberty was going to disappear into an empire. And Marcus Polio, the hero of our story in some ways, wanted to create a museum and a library in Rome at that time that would allow the public to have access to art and history in a way that he hoped would serve in, in some ways as a bulwark against dictatorship and the loss of liberty. So we see the rise of museums in, in the way we understand them as being coincident with this moment that democracy or rather uh, liberty was at risk of uh, disappearing from the world. Hmm. So the elements of the public art museum already existed in the classical world. What occurred when Christianity swept through Europe? Well, so I agree. I think that in the ancient world, and certainly in Rome, the idea of, of public places for display of art for the public was widespread. But in the Middle Ages, as we see the transformation of Western Europe into a society that was led by and, and inspired in all kinds of ways by Christianity, the church becomes ascendant and more important in the world than, than in, of course, religion was in some ways before. And museums really fade as an idea replaced by public presentations of religious art. We all know about the age of cathedrals, for example, and people could see art in those ways if they went to church. And in the great cathedrals of France, for example, or Germany of the high Middle Ages, these were, they weren't exactly museums, but they were certainly presentation of art in ways that did the same thing museums do. And museums themselves, in the ways the Romans understood them, did not exist during the Middle Ages. Yeah, I love, as early as the introduction, you touch upon this with saying, like the venerated sanctuaries of ancient Greece, the soaring cathedrals of the European Gothic Age and the opulent palaces of Renaissance Italy, art museums have become the secular temples of our time. What does the modern museum reveal about our values and identity. Well, one of the things that, that I think is most interesting about museums in every period is how much they reveal about the people who built them. 
So in our age, and, and of course, my book is really written about museums across the United States primarily, but my knowledge mostly comes from working at the Metropolitan, where I am. And these museums, the museum movement, as it came to the fore in the latter part of the 19th century in America, it really was in part an expression of a new ideal that followed the Civil War, that culture can help to inform the human experience, it can elevate the human condition. The, the Metropolitan and so many of these museums were designed not for the wealthy and aristocratic, although they were there for them for sure, but also for the working class people who are uneducated. And it was the dream of the founders of the Met, as well as the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, for example, both of which took place in 1870, that the public would use these museums, everyone in the public would. They would, on their day off from work, they would come to the museum and have a chance to learn and be elevated. So they were democratizing gestures that were intended to help bring the community together around common purpose and provide a higher level of education and civic engagement for everyone. Hmm. Taking a step back, would you talk about the reinvention of public art museums in 18th century Europe? Yes, of course. So as we said earlier, in the ancient world, we began to see the rise of the museum as a civic gesture, especially in Rome. During the Enlightenment, the period of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, where there were so many great thinkers who were challenging traditional assumptions about aristocratic leadership, about monarchy, about the role of religion in the lives of free people, there became this, this new interest in the role of culture and in the presentation of culture in ways that helped to advance the core goals of the Enlightenment, separation of church and state, free societies, the place of democracy, the value of education, the rights of the individual. And in the middle of all of those very high big vision ideas, the museum began to emerge as a gesture that helped to accomplish that. In the 18th century, we see the rise of museums in Italy and France and England, the British Museum, the Louvre, the Capitoline Museum in Rome. And they were all intended in some fashion to accomplish those goals. And within a matter of decades, museums began to populate the entire cityscape across Europe. Mm. What distinguished those three museums you mentioned, the Capital Line, the Louvre, and the British Museum? Well, I talk about those in the book in some detail because I thought they were especially important. In each case, they were intended to be comprehensive institutions with lots of art that demonstrated something about the range of cre human creativity. They were intended to celebrate enlightenment thinking. And there's an individual story for each of them. The British Museum in, in London was founded in the first instance with a gift from one collector, Hans Sohn. And then that became the basis for a very long period of active collecting of art across all kinds of realms. And eventually, therefore, the natural history and natural science component and the art component were divided. But the British Museum began with this idea of gathering the knowledge of the world. The Louvre was a little bit different. The aspiration there was, in the first instance, to create a museum for the benefit of the public for many of the same reasons we've been discussing. But when Napoleon comes upon the scene, his ambition was much more selfish. He wanted to create a museum that reflected the glory of his own leadership. 
and that he could build in Paris a museum unparalleled in the world that celebrated all of the great artistic achievements everywhere he went and waged war. So the, the Louvre is many, many objects that were acquired through treaties that he enacted with civilizations that he defeated. It's a controversial way to build a museum, but it's hard to argue with the results because the Louvre is today still one of the great museums of the world, but that's how it got started. And the capital line, perhaps more in line with those classical ideals of being a safeguard for the public? Yeah, well, the capital line is an interesting special case. On the one hand, Italy had always had very strong traditions of appreciation for classical art. Even throughout the Middle Ages, there was a great appreciation of the legacy of Greece and Rome throughout Italy. And during the age of the Renaissance, as the Middle Ages came to an end, and we see the rise of new interest in learning, and the, the Renaissance was in many ways the beginning of enlightenment thinking, there was great love and appreciation for collecting art, and great collections of ancient art began to be amassed, including by the popes, as well as by other wealthy people in Rome and elsewhere. And during the enlightenment, so let's say in the 18th century, as people became more and more interested in learning about art, we, we have many people going on what was called the Grand Tour. And that would be Americans as well as uh, British citizens and French and others, Germans, would go on very long trips to explore and appreciate the culture of other places. People like Edward Gibbon went on a Grand Tour. And while he was in Rome, he was inspired to write The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. The great writer and thinker Goethe went on a grand tour to Sicily and he spent two years there. So these were, these were opportunities to learn and explore. But at the same time, many of these collectors would go to these places and they would actually buy the art. They would take the art. There were no laws keeping them from acquiring things that they found. So the Capitoline Museum in Rome in part was founded to provide access to learning and enlightenment for everyone. But it was also founded because if they didn't collect all that art in a museum, it was going to be taken away by all the tourists. So it was a defensive measure, as it were, to keep their cultural heritage in their own city. And this aspect of travel also figures prominently in the establishment of the American Museum because wealthy Americans were taking a grand tour themselves. You talked about how the American Museum evolved from this European Enlightenment ideal. Would you elaborate on the essential differences between European museums and the community-based American Museum? Yes, the, the center of my book really explores the ways in which American museums are distinct from other kinds of museums, and they reflect something about the character of the American experiment in democracy. There's no question American museums were inspired by the achievement of European museums. The founders of the Metropolitan, for example, were directly inspired by the Louvre. They wanted to build a great museum in New York that resembled or competed with the great museums elsewhere in the world like that in Paris. The difference is, that the American movement was built on community engagement. Museums were funded by, created by, led by the local citizenry, 
not the government. And that, for example, when the Metropolitan was founded, they were mostly civic leaders in New York City, businessmen primarily. None of them had great art collections or vast resources. And it wasn't the government that was gonna provide those things. And there wasn't some royal or imperial collection that could provide the basis for the collection, like say the Louvre did. The Louvre had a thousand years of, of emperors collecting art as the basis for what they created. The Met and, and American museums were really experiments in civic governance. So it was through fundraising, individual fundraising and gifts, gifts of works of art. We have at the Met 1.5 million works of art, one of the largest and most extensive collections of art in the world. Every single object in our collection, every single one was given to us, either as an object or the money was given to us so that we could buy it. And that's a remarkable thing. Every American museum has a story like that to tell. And we're funded through gifts and admissions fees. Our boards are run by local members of the community. So these are community enterprises, which distinguish them fundamentally from museums elsewhere in the world. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the author and president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Daniel H. Weiss. His new book is Why the Museum Matters. You give examples of visiting exhibitions that made a profound impact on Americans. What did we learn from the visits to the U.S. of the Mona Lisa and Michelangelo's sculpture La Pietà? Well, one of the greatest sensations in the museum, American museum world in the 20th century was when John F. Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline negotiated with the French government alone of the Mona Lisa, the most treasured painting in France and one of the most admired paintings in the world to come to the US. And it spent a few weeks at the National Gallery in Washington and a few weeks at the Metropolitan in New York. And it created a sensation because many, many people who had of course had heard of the painting were never going to get to go to Paris to see it. So there were lines down the street, both in Washington and New York, where people waited hours and hours and hours to spend 30 seconds in front of this great painting. What it taught us, which I think was the first step towards the idea of special exhibitions, was that people are really interested in seeing new and exciting things within museums that tend to have permanent collections. It's great to have a museum with a permanent collection but it's more exciting to have a museum with all those things that also has something special happening on a regular basis. So the Mona Lisa's visit taught us that that's a big deal. The Michelangelo exhibition, which took place during my time as president at the Met, was intended to explore certain aspects of Michelangelo's artistic genius. And I talk in the book about the ways in which we transformed some galleries, just some rooms in the museum, into a place that resembled the kind of great spaces around which Michelangelo did his work, including in one gallery, we tried to recreate the Sistine Chapel ceiling to give viewers a sense of just what was involved in creating such a monumental achievement. And so I wanted to explore in part in the book, special exhibitions not only create an exciting moment for the public, but they also invite us to present art in ways that the public doesn't otherwise have access to. 
This is different from taking a course or reading a book. It's an opportunity to experience art in a way that's more choreographed and thoughtful. And special exhibitions really enliven most museums for that reason. How did the King Tut exhibition signal a new chapter for museums in the U.S.? So if we think about the visit of the Mona Lisa in the early 1960s, we discovered, as I said, the idea that people are going to show up for an exciting new opportunity for a moment. And then it was in the late 1970s that Thomas Hoving, who was at the time the director of the Metropolitan, my museum, he worked with the Egyptian government and was able to negotiate the loan of the extraordinary collection of objects that came out of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, who was himself not a particularly distinguished king, Pharaoh, but his, his tomb had not been molested, so the objects were pristine. There was an, a sensation around the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s, and those objects had never left Cairo until they came on this visit in the 1970s to New York and Washington. And this was the birth of the idea of the blockbuster exhibition. That was not something people thought about or did before that. The, the tomb of Tutankhamun was, it, the objects were exhibited in both venues in a way that recreated how exotic and magnificent they were. And it created a public sensation. People lined up there again for hours and hours and hours to see this show. And what we learned in the museum world is that special exhibitions that have an exciting concept can generate new audiences and enliven even the permanent collection. So it was a landmark exhibition that created a whole movement around special exhibitions ever since. Yes. Would you explain for us the role of the museum in the public sphere? Well, I think museums are extraordinarily important public monuments because they do several things that I can't really think of other places doing for a free society. That museums are places where people can come and find solace and be educated as we've talked about. But they're also places that exist in the public sphere for debate and discussion, a little bit like universities, but universities are mostly for the students and the faculty who are enrolled there. Museums are there for everyone, whether they're art museums or science museums or history museums or whatever. So I think it's an important role that museums play in being places where public debate and discussion can take place, where people can disagree in the realm of ideas over one point of view or another. And it becomes, in that sense, a public forum for discussion, debate, and learning. And I think in this world, especially where we have seen evidence that our government is losing its ability, has lost its ability to debate across difference very effectively, we have a lot at stake in learning and remembering how to do that kind of work in universities and in museums and elsewhere in our society. And I think museums are fundamental in that purpose. We have to be a place where difficult ideas can be discussed, where people can learn from each other, and we can share in the excitement of new learning and new discovery. Your years at the Met have seen seismic changes in our nation. What was the impact on museums of our reckoning with race in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder in 2020? Well, the changes of the last few years have indeed been seismic for all of us. Everyone can tell their own story 
about how their world or where they work or what they do was changed by the experience of both the pandemic and the social upheaval that took place beginning in the summer of 2020. The Metropolitan and other museums also had to contend with those kinds of issues. And on the one hand, museums represent something long-term and enduring in our society. We are intended to preserve the cultural heritage of history. And that means we don't change so fast because we're supposed to play the long game and have these objects and programs that endure. On the other hand, we have to live in the world around us and we have to evolve. So what we sought to do in this period of upheaval and change was to identify how can museums meet the needs of the people we serve, evolve quickly, be of service to the world, at the same time, not lose sight of who we are and what we're here to do. So I found it to be among the most interesting and challenging periods of my career because we were intensely addressing those issues every day. I feel very strongly that we have to be relevant to the society around us to engage people where they are, to help them find value in what we do, but also that we are perpetual institutions that are in service to the long-term values of civilization, which means we should not be changing everything instantly. We have to think the long-term as well. And navigating those two tensions, the long-term objectives of the institution and the urgent issues before us in our society has made the work very interesting and not a little bit challenging. I can imagine. The Eurocentric and colonialist aspects of museums were not new issues. They were already being challenged in different realms for several years. Please tell us about the acronyms DTP and CTM. So these acronyms represent organizations that were, let's call them activist groups, that were dedicated to the idea that urgent change is needed. As I was saying a moment ago, I felt it was our responsibility to find a balance between changing to meet the needs of our society, but preserving what we value. DTP is, is an acronym for Decolonize This Place. And their view was very strongly that museums represent artifacts of a society they no longer wish to live in, that they're colonizing, they're full of people of vast wealth, they're inequitable, they don't meet the needs of the people around them, and they should be eliminated or radically changed. And CTM was an, is an acronym for Change the Museum, much the same kind of goal. So these activist organizations have a radically different view of what museums should be than the traditional museums that we know of today. Whereas I don't subscribe to their views, I think they're too extreme and uh, ultimately irresponsible in trying to imagine how these, the kind of institutions they contemplate could be sustained. I think the arguments they raise are very helpful because they call us to question our own assumptions. And again, if a museum is a venue for the free exchange of ideas, then we should talk about why museums exist and how they can serve the public. And I welcomed the opportunity to hear from DTP and CTM their ideas. I didn't accept most of them, but I learned from them. And it to for sure helped inform and evolve our own thinking. The best ideas come from places where you're finding disagreement with people. So I think in, in the end, what I learned from DTP and CTM is that everybody cares about museums very deeply. That's why we're arguing about this. 
and we need to find common ground as to how best they should move forward. Acknowledging the need for openness to new artistic ideas and diverse cultures, you also emphasize the importance of universalism. Would you elaborate on that? Yes. So I use the term universal in contrast to the term encyclopedic. Museums like the Metropolitan or the Louvre or the, or the National Gallery in Washington, many of the big museums, have traditionally been called encyclopedic because we're supposed to have the art of all cultures across all time and space. But in fact, that is not the case. That if we think about the human creativity from the beginnings of recorded history all around the world to the present day, we're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different cultures who produce magnificent things that inform their own experience. And we at the Met, can never collect all of those things of all of those societies. So to call our museums encyclopedic is to presume we've got it covered. Whereas the universal idea is intended to do two things that are a little bit different. One is to recognize that our aspiration is to collect the art across all of these cultures and across all of history. But more than likely we will not be successful because it's too vast of an ambition. So there's a little bit of modesty built into that idea that we haven't covered all the ground. Because think about this for a moment. Supposing you're, you come from a culture that is not represented at the Met and you wanna come see this great encyclopedic museum and your own culture has nothing in the building. The signal you receive is that, that you're not important. You're not part of the human story. And that is not our intention. So the universal idea on the one hand is intended to recognize that our aspiration is to reach out to and learn about all of the cultures, but maybe we don't have them all. And the second part is to acknowledge our connectedness. One of the things that people find most extraordinary when they walk through the halls of great museums, like the Louvre or the Met or wherever, is to see the ways in which disparate cultures resemble each other and how they create ideas or, or deal with challenging questions. The human condition has more in common than what separates it across time and culture. And the more we learn about that, the more we can appreciate the ways we're connected to each other, we might be able to build a better world. At different points in the book, you cite the philosopher and ethicist Kwame Anthony Appiah. Would you explain his idea of the golden nugget? Yes, in one book that Apia wrote, he writes about the ways in which there was a presumption that human culture of the kind we care about, we remember, begins in antiquity in ancient Greece. And then it's passed along almost like a lineage from Greece to Rome, to Italy, to enlightenment Europe, and then to America. And the presumption there is that that culture, that Western European culture dominates all others and all others are subordinate to it. And this is part of the challenge we're trying to work past now. We fully recognize that there are cultures far disparate all over the world, from Asia to the Pacific, throughout the United States and South America and Africa, that have very little or nothing to do with the golden nugget that are worth celebrating and understanding. So the golden nugget was a presumption that Enlightenment thinkers had. When they were thinking about the world in their own way, they tended to be pretty Eurocentric. And I talk about that in the book because I want to ex explore 
how our own views of what's worth collecting have expanded in the last several generations. Toward the end, you state that the conflict we face is more ideological than existential, and that tribalism is one of the greatest threats to the museum as well as other aspects of society. So thinking about the path forward, what would be the ideal museum of the future? Well, I think one of the the things about the museum experiment that I find most heartening is the ways in which each museum can inform its own mission in, in unique ways. But what I th- that is to say each museum can be very different from other museums. But my hope is that each of them will help in, in their own way, given whatever they collect and whatever stories they wish to tell, help people to understand the interest and richness and beauty of the cultures they study and the ways in which those are related to the larger story of what it means to be a human being in the world. And to see that these connections are very meaningful. As I said before, the universalist idea is to show that we have more in common than what sets us apart. So I think modern museums, contemporary museums can do that in all kinds of ways, but if they ignore the past and only dwell on the ways in which they're exceptional in a somewhat narcissistic and self-absorbed way, we run the risk of losing sight of who we are and where we came from. And if they're too retrospective, if they're too interested in history and they're not paying attention to what goes on in the world today, then they're gonna be more like mausoleums, which is also not useful. So the art and the science and the practice of leading museums in the world today is to pay attention to both of those and figure out a way to make it work. Author and president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Daniel H. Weiss. He'll discuss his new book, Why the Museum Matters, at Emory University's Carlos Museum on Tuesday, February 28th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes jumps for joy with details on the world's largest bounce house coming to the Gwinnett County Fairgrounds this weekend. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The world's largest Ounce House 
is coming to the Gwinnett County Fairgrounds this weekend. The Guinness record-holding inflatable measures 16,000 square feet and is designed to accommodate adults as well as children. City Light senior producer Kim Droves has more. The Big Bounce America Tour is rolling out its massive, interactive, inflatable sculptures and inviting Georgia kids and adults of all ages to spend some time jumping for joy. The world's largest bounce house was created by XL Events, and when I caught up with their co-CEO, Cameron Craig, he explained why his team wanted to create a bounce house big enough for all to enjoy. It's quite a funny story. Um, we, we, we do events all over the world. Um, you can probably tell from my uh, accent that I, I, I'm not from Georgia. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Scotland. And where the weather's not very nice and um, we don't get the chance to do many outdoor things as much as we would like to when we were growing up. So when we, myself and my colleague, were working on the concept for, for the Big Bounce America, we wanted to try something that had never been done before. Um, and that was to create a larger than life um, experience that's open to the full family, basically. So it's not just like a usual bounce house or a standard inflatable attraction where mum and dad get the kids tickets and the kids go in and jump around while mum and dad sit outside on their phones or, or doing, drinking tea or coffee. For Big Bounce America, the mum and dad and aunt and uncle and big brother, little sister, everyone can participate together. And that's what made us think, well, we're going to need a bigger a bigger design, a bigger bouncer for this. So then um, one thing led to another and we decided, well, do you know what? We're getting somewhere here. This is a cool concept. Why don't we contact uh, Guinness World of Records and see what the current um, the current record holder is? Now let's blow it out the water. Let's make something bigger. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and we got bigger and added more attractions. And then um, the Big Bounce America was born, and and we tour, we tour all over the country, and it it's just it's a lot of fun. And and mom and dad sometimes have more fun than the kids do, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty cool. So, what exactly is inside of the Guinness Record Holding attraction? The coolest thing for me, my my favourite part of the event, obviously the event's made up of of multiple uh, custom-designed inflatable attractions, but the main attraction is always the Guinness World Record holder. As you mentioned there, it's over 16,000 square feet. It holds uh, 350 people at any one time. So if you compare that to to a bounce house or a, or a castle that you get, maybe for a kid's birthday party in, in the back garden or the lawn or something, they usually hold seven or eight people this, at the most. So that, that this is is a whole new a whole new ball game. For me, the coolest thing is, uh, is the fact that there's a stage, there's a live stage inside the bouncer. On that stage, we have DJs, we have performers, entertainers, and it's basically a full-scale dance party inside the the inflatable. So if you if you've never been before, if you can imagine three hundred people doing the cha-cha slide uh, on an inflatable, <laughs> it's it's very very funny. It's a lot of fun, um, and and people people really enjoy it. So for me, that's the coolest thing is actually having a dance party and in, inside the attraction. 
Oh my gosh, that sounds beyond ridiculous and mm-hmm. so fun. How do you keep kids and adults safe and make sure that big kids aren't knocking over little kids? See, yeah, that's a good question and a good point. Safety is uh, is obviously our number one concern and it has to be at the forefront of, of, of all the thought process and everything we do, safety comes first. So what we do from, from, as you mentioned there, about bigger kids and some children, we, we, we separate the day into different sessions. So on a Friday, we do toddler sessions in the morning when the, when the normal kids are at school. So the preschoolers can come in and join the fun when it's a little, a little bit quieter and there's no bigger, bigger children round about them. On a Saturday morning, we do a juniors only session, which means no one over the age of eight is allowed in, apart from parents and and, and family members. But from a children's perspective, it's seven years and under. And then in the afternoon, we do 15 years and under. So it's all the bigger children, some teenagers, and and, and obviously the whole family can go with them. And then in the evening, from three three o'clock onwards, we do adults only for 16 and over. So you can imagine that. There's no kids on site at all. And it's just a, a whole bunch of, of adults acting like kids. So that, that's how we that's how we separate the day into to different age groups. That makes sense. So what are the logistics of touring with such a large inflatable? I can only imagine it would create some challenges. Yes, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's like um, if you can imagine a touring band or touring stadiums or touring live music venues all over the country. We travel with six trailers. So there's six like massive trailers that host all the attractions and all the speakers and all the the merchandise and all the blowers and all the stakes, all the equipment needed to, to set the attractions up. Um, travels from, from right now, it's traveling from Jacksonville, Florida, up to Atlanta, because uh, that's where we were um, last weekend. So everything gets packed up, gets put in the trailers, moves on, and then the team the team unload it and and set it all up at the next at the next venue. Do you know offhand how long it takes to inflate a 16,000 square foot bounceable? It's actually not as long as you would think. It takes a long time to set up, right? It's like a big jigsaw. So all the pieces all need to get attached together with Velcro and rope and everything. Once everything's all attached and staked down and secured, when all the blowers go on for the first time, the full thing can be fully inflated in about 12 to 14 minutes. Oh my gosh. Wow. That is surprising. Yeah. That it actually surprising. takes longer to deflate. It takes longer to go down because um, it takes a lot longer time for all that air to escape. That is so interesting. And do you need to make repairs before you travel city to city? Does it ever get beat up a little? Um, it gets beat up from from the extent that so many people enjoying it and having fun on it so it does it does the odd time it will need we pressure wash it everywhere we go every new venue gets a proper clean from top to bottom and if there's any any repairs needing done the the, the team would do that on site before we open for the next event but it's, it's built to to, to to travel these things and cool well finally my assumption is that it is shoes off socks only is yep. there anything else that i should have in mind before one was to go bounce it out yeah our, our tagline on some of the, the the t-shirts is sneakers off party on so <laughs> so you were right there are no sneakers allowed but you must wear your socks so sneakers off party on um, apart from that, just uh, be prepared to ready to let your hair down and 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 have some fun. And and let me tell you, it is a workout. If uh, the, the the sessions last for three hours, 
And some people used to say, mm, three hours, that's not very long. Listen, if, if your child or if you can last jumping the way we have people jumping for three hours, then you deserve a medal. And I guarantee the kids will definitely sleep at night time. <laughs> XL Events co-CEO Cameron Craig speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. The Big Bounce America Tour rolls into the Gwinnett County Fairgrounds this weekend. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series highlighting local dance artists speaking of dance. Today features Julie Johnson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series Speaking of Dance where we shine a light on some of the many local dancers that move us with their movements. Hi, my name is Dr. Julie B. Johnson. I'm a dance artist and educator on faculty at Spelman College, where I serve as the chair of the Department of Dance Performance and Choreography. My mom likes to tell the story of my days as a kindergartner when I'd come home after school and tell her all about what I had learned. But I wouldn't just use words. I would twirl and cake and roll and hop as I described every detail of my day. Movement has always been my mode of processing information, expressing ideas, exploring questions, and connecting with people. So I realized very early on that dance is how I feel most whole. I've studied dance in neighborhood studios, a high school for the arts, renowned intensive programs, conservatories in higher ed, global dance exchanges, and onwards towards earning a PhD in dance studies. I'm a committed, lifelong dance learner, and it brings me so much joy. I'm grateful for every amazing opportunity it's brought my way. There is nothing like going to the theater to see a dance concert. But I'd say I'm most inspired by the process, the dance that happens before the concert and after, and especially dance beyond the proscenium stage, out of the theater and studio settings. Dance that happens at recess and in your friend's basement, in churches and clubs, in fields and on pavement, in prayer and in protest, in sacred circles and community ciphers. I'm driven by dance as a mode of research, the understanding that our bodies hold and generate knowledge, that we learn from them and through them, and that because of this, dance can help us make change in the world, starting with our own bodies and rippling out to our communities. I focus on participatory dance and embodied memory mapping. Participatory simply means interactive and open to all. Embodied memory mapping is a process of exploring the personal and cultural memories stored in our bodies and exchanging those stories with others through movement. It might happen through everyday gestures, social dance, any particular codified technique, 
or creative interactions that people invent together in a moment. So rather than focusing on a particular style, I facilitate opportunities for spontaneous and serendipitous connections between participants from all walks of life. A favorite icebreaker activity that I've learned and adapted from mentors is to invite participants to run through all the different nonverbal gestures they can think of that are used to greet people. A wave, a head nod, a hug, a fist bump, a peace sign, a dab. We talk about all the cultural, historical, and political information coded in those gestures, and then we use them to craft a dance phrase, manipulating each gesture by altering the tempo, the spatial patterns, the energetic qualities, abstracting the movements to create new meanings while the original meanings still linger. There are endless possibilities and discoveries to be made because each person is going to contribute something unique to it each and every time. In 2016, I was invited by the inaugural chair of the dance department at Spelman College to come to Atlanta and help her build the new department alongside some amazing faculty. The chance to come make a life here and be part of the collective effort to build an innovative new curriculum was a dream. Atlanta's legacy of Black leaders, activists, and innovators is embedded in the land. It's encoded in our curriculum and in public discourse, and it's viscerally felt in the energy of the new generation of creatives and makers here. As an artist, I get to learn from the past, present, and future of this city, and it absolutely shows up in my work. For four years now, I have been leading an archives-driven dance collaboration in partnership with Giwa and Mata, and a collective of community visioners called Idle Crimes and Heavy Work, exploring the history of Black women's incarcerated labor, resistance, and restoration in Georgia. We connect the stories of real women past and present to sites through Atlanta that were shaped by their labor but long since forgotten through acts of resistance, love, and joy. The next iteration of Idle Crimes and Heavy Work is in progress for this spring. The best way to stay updated is by following us on Instagram, at movingourstories. You can follow me at julie.b.johnson. You can also see our dance film and other videos at idlecrimes.com. And check out deeper cuts of my previous work at juliebjohnson.com. Thank you so much for listening. That was Julie Johnson dancing to music by Coffee and Nagoma Numa. More information about Johnson, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. Finally, today, we send a special message to a recent donor. Happy early birthday, Bonnie O'Neill. We hope you enjoy celebrating tomorrow. And we appreciate your being a part of the City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., blues rock guitar legend Joe Bonamassa stops by 
ahead of his performance at the Fox Theater. Plus, we'll hear about the new children's production of Duke Ellington's Cat, on stage now at the Center for Puppetry Arts. And music contributor Vaughn Phoenix stops by for this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Daniel H. Wise, the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and author of Why the Museum Matters. You can catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.